1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Walking, we are told, is a fantastic way to improve your overall health and well-being. It reduces your risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, and even some cancers. A 2007 study of inactive people, for instance, found that even a low level of exercise, that's approximately 75 minutes per week, improved their level of fitness significantly. Kevin Corcoran is an environmental biologist and he lives near McCroom. His books on walking are the result of extensive study of the areas, their natural habitats, flora, fauna and wildlife. Over 30 years ago, his suggestion of walking guidebooks and walking holidays were rejected out of hand by tourism bodies. Fast forward to today and we now know how wrong that rejection would prove to be as the popularity of activity holidays continues to soar. 28 years ago, he brought out his first book of guided walks in West Cork. It's still very much sought after and has been updated on no less than five occasions. On this evening's programme, I accompany him on one of the featured walks in that book, which takes us to Glengarriff National Park, and we extend an invitation to you to join us. So, thank you for doing so. Good evening and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me, a very appropriate title for this evening's programme in particular. Kevin Corcoran is an ardent follower of sustainable living in a natural environment. The press release, which accompanies his book, describes him as an eco-dweller who rejects all forms of mass consumerism. Kevin spends lots of his time walking, obviously, sketching and recording the demise of our natural environment. Glengarriff National Park is one of ten walks featured in his book. He describes it as a delightful walk along the empty by-roads and nature trails that weave their way through the forests and hills. It's a walk, he writes, that is accessible to everyone and can be performed in all types of weather with no difficulty being experienced along the good quality green roads. So with that in mind, I meet him on a bright but extremely cold November morning, but it turns out to be an ideal day for what we have in mind, walking. The walk is located in the woods above the village of Glengareth. The entrance to the park is just a short distance out along the Kenmare Road from the village. As we set off and as I try my best to keep up with the pace, Kevin tells me how and where the interest in walking, wildlife and the environment came from.
2: I suppose it would have been with me all my life, really. We lived on the verge of the town next to the countryside and I just knew eventually when you had to start making decisions about your life, I wanted to go to college to actually do nature and I did zoology and botany. And uh, I suppose even when I got into that then, you really got into the outdoors and getting into wilderness areas, and eventually that ended up in producing walking guides. And that came from, I suppose, the fact that when you go to Europe and a lot of other countries, there were walking routes all over the place when you went there, and you had all these fantastic places you could visit, and there was absolutely nothing in Ireland, and I was always amazed... So I just thought, you know, here we've got some wonderful places to hike, we have wonderful nature. And initially, when I started approaching certain type of tourism bodies, they laughed at me. A walk, people, you want to go hiking up the top of a mountain, couldn't you just drive up? Like? They just they had no interest. And I was proposing at the time maybe that wouldn't it be lovely if we had a, a walk from Cox City up the Gugan Barra, source the sea, and back down again. And I, I drew out all the plans and the maps for it, and they're just through in the bin. And that so frustrated me. I went away and approached the publisher and brought up West Cork Walk's book uh, in 1990. And I'm now delighted to be able to celebrate its anniversary and its fifth edition. And of course, being a walking guide, you have to update it at various stages, and you've done that on five occasions. Five times for the West Cork Walks, and it would be something similar with the West of Ireland Walks. Now, walking guides have short shelf life, so that's why it's great to update them on a regular basis, because there is change all the time. But the context of the book was just uh, interesting stories, lovely little illustrations of wildlife, and it sort of encouraged you to actually engage. And I suppose if I wanted to celebrate anything over that anniversary, it's to celebrate that would we'll say well being that walking brings to people and I've seen so many incredible examples of how It has improved people's lives. A lot of people see walk is, oh, I must do a walk, get down some weight, and they walk from A
1: to B with their head down and get it done as fast as possible. And they're missing out on so much because there's so much around us. Even now here, it's a very, very cold day, but it's a beautiful day, and you can hear the sound of the stream in the background, and nature is all around us.
2: And it's that connecting with nature. You're not actually doing anything artificial. You're actually reclaiming something that's been taken away from us by modern society we're so sort of locked into urbanity with just shopping and materialism and we've lost our connection with the real world and i think it's important that people get that back and it's what I call your genetic inheritance. And as much as a salmon that migrates from sea to the river to breed, it knows exactly what part of what river to come back to. It'll come back to the exact same patch of the river where itself was spawned, and we have no idea how that works. So there is some sort of genetic memory being passed on, and I think we all have that. And if we tap back into our genetic memory, I think it it actually has a wonderful positive effect on, on you no matter who you are.
1: We are all well aware of the physical benefits of walking, but Kevin Corcoran is at pains to stress that it goes much further than this. Time and time again during our walk through Glengarriff National Park, he relates instances where people's mental well-being has vastly improved from taking up walking as a leisure activity.
2: I can remember a good few years ago when they were having a walking weekend in the Sheep's Head down by Bantry in West Cork, which I must say is a a fantastic place to hike. I launched a a walking weekend there, and at that launch there was this, what I would call, retired couple. They were definitely late 60s, early 70s, and they'd been there listening to the little talk and the lecture. Or slideshow I gave and when it was over we were all having a cup of coffee this couple started moving towards me and at first I said uh oh something's wrong <laughs> I bet you they've had a confrontation with a landowner on, with one of my walks or something so I was quite tense when they came up to me and she was pushing him saying go on go on and I said oh, is there something wrong and then when they saw I was a bit paranoid This said oh my god no we just want to thank you and I said thank me but I don't even know you I've never met you before and he says no 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 it is what you did for us with your walking guides and they started to explain he says look we're from way up the country up near Sligo direction and we came all the ways down for this weekend because to put Put it quite frankly, I retired from my job a few years ago and the kids were all reared and gone and married and I found that myself and my wife, we'd been so busy working and rearing our family all our lives. And when retirement came, it came with a bang, and we didn't know what to do with ourselves. And we were just sitting around all day, every day. And he said, to make a long story short, what happened eventually was we were both diagnosed with very serious clinical depression. And we were on doctor's uh, supervision, under doctor's supervision, and we were on medication. But we just kept getting worse. And we were very, very sad people. And our children tried everything to try and get us into something. Buying us fishing gear, buying us golf gear, and, but nothing worked for us. We were never into that thing. Then one day, our eldest daughter arrived to see how we were, and she was very cross. She was sick of us being so useless and not making any effort, and she had a walking guide with her, and she it was yours, West of Ireland walks, and she slapped down the table in front of us, and she roared, for God's sake, would you just go out and walk? And we picked up the book, and she was so cross, we were terrified not to do it, we took the the book out, did one of the walks, and bang you changed our lives we just realized this is what we were into and we're out every day following one of your guided walks and eventually we just developed this passion and we couldn't wait to get up in the morning to be going off and now we're going off all over the country and we go overseas hiking and walking and we've never looked back and we just want to thank you and it just gave me a big hug and i was standing there speechless what's given you a lot of pleasure I got the most incredible pleasure out of it to see that something so simple could actually bring so much pleasure to people that are, as I said, in a dark space.
1: In the updated version of his book, West Cork Walks, Kevin Corcoran tells us that it's a good idea to read through the entire walk before you set out. Each walk is divided into numbered sections, and these numbers are marked on the accompanying map. Use the map regularly to check your location. Starting at point number 1, follow the dotted line on to point number 2 and so on throughout the route. If you lose your bearings at any time, try to find your position on the map and refer to the previous numbered point, which should explain your next move. So that would suggest that it's a good idea to bring the guidebook with you.
2: Definitely if you have a guide that will show you what to look out for and it'll also importantly tell you what's ahead of you. Is it going to be tough or moderate? Is it going to be very long? you would even have a rough idea of the time. So you can actually space it. So just get out then. And, you know, the the guides I suppose that I have written, the comments I always got was, they just love the detail that introduced you to nature that I never thought was there. And if I said sort of, look, continue up this uh, uh, for five minutes and didn't go left, and all of a sudden the left is there in front of me and they just found the guides very, very helpful and safe. But as I said, then changes do happen and that's why you update them. Ideally, Kevin, what should you take with you on on a walk? Because you you do
1: need to be prepared and when you bear in mind how erratic Irish weather is, you do need to be prepared for it as well.
2: Yeah, so the most important thing with the Irish thing is you're always checking the weather. But once you get a bit used to it, the weather never puts you off. There's nothing wrong with the Irish weather if you dress accordingly and good rain gear is always handy to have I know it's so light and so available but even outside that I always bring a change of clothes in the car so that even if you do get wet it's just lovely to be able to change as soon as you get back to the car and you're comfortable all over again and then you go off your celebratory drink or a cup of coffee or your little meal, whatever, wherever you're hiking. And you're and, dry. And, and you're dry. But if you're not dry, you get so cold and miserable. Yeah, you yeah. go home with a salt taste in your mouth and you just want to get home. But if you're starting off, I think you, you, you keep it fairly tame at the beginning. You pick low level, moderate walks that can be done in two, three hours. Now you can extend them to five, six hours. And once you get the understanding of what you should have brought and shouldn't have brought, you know, a little bit of food, a bottle of water, you don't necessarily need the rain gear all the time i mean <laughs> even today now it's a little bit showery but you'd have a, a light rain jacket and the rucksack all right but i suppose for me the most important piece of equipment is good shoes once you start going off the beaten track and as you progress the little tougher walks, you do need proper hiking boots with a good grip and good ankle support where they come right up over your ankle and cushion and support your ankle. If your feet leave you down or if your shoes leave you down, you know, it's like getting wet. It ruins
1: your day as well.
2: It does, yeah. And the the biggest thing is actually, you know, when you don't have proper shoes and, and, and you slip. And if you get a bang, you know, bang your knee or just bang your ankle. Or, God forbid, when you do get into rough terrain and, you know, the ground is very uneven, you can twist your ankle and you can't get down off the mountain on your own if you have a twisted ankle. So good boots tend to prevent that. This evening I'm with
1: Kevin Corcoran in Glengarriff National Park. It's one of ten walks included in his book, West Cork Walks. Walking in West Cork, he tells us, offers an incredible variety of choice. Mountain peaks, forested valleys, pristine lakes and sandy beaches. And that's the end of part one. We continue on our way along Glengarriff National Park in part two shortly. you're very welcome back to part two of the programme. I'm in the midst of a walk through Glengareth National Park this evening with Kevin Corcoran, author of West Cork Walks, a book that's now in its 25th year and has been updated on five occasions. by the author and equipped with the author's guidebook, I continue along through Glengareth National Park. In his introduction to this particular walk, he writes In Glengareth, trapped within a rugged valley that stretches to the waters of Bantry Bay, there is an oak wood that has existed continually since its first appearance 10,000 years ago. Completely sheltered by the Caha Mountains to the north, it is free from the effects of icy winds, while its coastal fringes are washed by the northern limit of the warming and moist Gulf Stream. These two factors together are responsible for producing woods of considerable luxuriance, full of moisture-loving mosses and ferns, as well as plants of warmer climes.
2: Because it is quite a large national park, all built around the ancient forest, of, which was basically a sessile oak forest, but with innumerable species in it, that are very hard to find. So you've got all the beautiful filmy ferns here, which you'll try and find. You've got the strawberry trees here, you've got yew trees. You would have all our native trees practically in here. And and, and climate-wise, would it differ from other areas of West Cork? It would be, I suppose, West Cork has its own individual climate, uh, which is basically hyper-oceanic. But because we're right near the sea here and sheltered in the bay, Bantry Bay, and surrounded by the mountains, it's even more intense. It's hyper, hyper hyper-oceanic. And what that means, basically, I suppose, which is... Bugs most Irish people what we call a soft day. It's always a bit wet and a bit damp, but that is due to the effect of the ocean just off our coast, and we're surrounded by the ocean. But especially down in the southwest, where the Gulf Stream comes up and tips us a little bit, the weather is always just perpetually mild and moist, and therefore you get this wonderful type of mist forest effect. That's actually quite rare all over Europe, and you get all these beautiful, tender, delicate plants able to thrive here. And if you look around, you're like everything is coated in moss. And then there's when you look at those, you're suddenly nice, there's an awful lot of them are quite exceptional there's all these type of ferns coating some of the trees and rocks again and when you look away up into the treetops uh, now that the, the leaves are missing you get these incredible sky gardens and they're all these unique oceanic lichens which are these moisture loving plants that don't ever like too much heat or too much dryness and when you look up you see all oh, this beautiful just jade green almost like cherry blossoms but it's light pale green now, some of them are quite exceptional. Yeah, and They're this is something that a lot of people wouldn't do. They'd walk along, I I wouldn't do it, walk along and forget about looking up. Exactly, and I suppose, because we've had a bit of stormy weather at the moment, you'd be very lucky, you'll find actually little twigs coming down with all these beautiful lichens on them. And we keep an eye out for them now, like, but you've got the bearded lichens, osnia you got the uh, extremely rare ones, the, the lungworts, and parmelias, these dog lichens. You get them here, and you'll get them anywhere there's ancient woodland. And ancient woodland is what was nature intended to, to coat this landscape. Um, and, and this would be ancient woodland. And this is ancient yeah. woodland. It's not ancient because there are ancient trees here, because this would have been cut down in allowed regrowth several times. It's ancient because of the biodiversity, that mix of plants uh, that are in it, that we can actually use to indicate that this is an ancient forest, because some of them can't survive outside woodland. They never can. So if they're here, they've been here ever. And if you go to a newly planted uh, woodland, be it of native species or whatever, or Those horrible introduced Sitka spruce trees, the conifer plantations, they have absolutely no biodiversity in them. Kevin Corcoran believes that this ancient
1: woodland survived because it was part of an old hunting estate used by the Earls of Bantry. This was a title in the peerage of Ireland and was created in 1816 for Richard White, first Viscount of Bantry. He got much of his titles and wealth as a thank you for helping to repel the French invasion of Bantry in 1800
2: they Had a hunting lodge inside in it, and the national park is built around that. And but they were into their exotics in the day as well, and they would have been planting stuff, bringing it in from Europe. So we can see here this big tree in front of us, the evergreen, which is the Lande. Horrible trees that we plant for hedging, and uh, you can see it's quite a nice tree when it's allowed to grow up, but ecologically, it won't support anything native. And how would this place then compare to? Garnish Island I suppose Garnish Island would be a good example of what you've just been speaking about of course with people like the the Earls of Bantry during the latter part of the 19th century they started opening this place up to a bit of tourism and there was uh, a lot of people started coming here and they recognised obviously they were the sort of first type of naturalists that understood about Plants and climate, and they realise that this whole place here never really gets any severe frost during the winter because of that temperate effect due to the the, the Gulf Stream and the ocean. So they realise that if you brought plants from all over the world, they will actually grow here, and they'll have to be those plants that are similar to the, the rare ferns that we ha- I've spoken about that grow here naturally and the unusual lichens and the mosses. So they discovered that you bring fern trees back from Australia, you bring different type of azaleas from the Himalayas, you bring fuchsias and montbritias from South Africa and South America and they all thrive. And of course, they were into their exotic gardens, which we still are. And mm. so that's why garnish is so beautiful. It's thriving on that unique climate that we have here. But for me, the garden is a little bit um, contrived. It's, it is pretty. I suppose it's like what a lot of us do to this day. We have our very organised gardens and it's only slowly the whole idea of wildlife gardening is creeping in that you might have a bit of a wildflower hay or.
1: this relationship do you think between human beings and trees uh, you have one view as you said a stick with a bush sticky out of the ground but then there's people who really have a, a relationship with trees and i suppose the extreme aspect of that would be hugging trees and the physical and mental well-being you can get from
2: it what's your view on that i think again we're probably tapping into some genetic inheritance and be- when humans first arrived in europe and ireland whatever it was into the temperate forest they came and the forest is what sustained them and as i said earlier on like the salmon trying to find its way back to the river with its birth there's a deep connection in us in there somewhere that connects us to to trees uh, more than any other plant and for me a tree definition of a tree is tree is the most magnificent of all living things it is the pinnacle of plant evolution and it is a living thing and the forest is even more complex it's a living organism in itself when you come to trees then and you tap into them i mean their their roots go way down into the ground and they connect with each other and all roots of trees are in symbiotic relationship with underground fungi which we call mycorrhiza and they actually quadruple the surface area of the roots ability to actually absorb water and minerals now a lot of the time we only see those fungi when they burst up through the ground in the autumn as the the fly garricks and the honey fungus or or the other woodland fungi we find but The real fungal plant, so to speak, is actually underneath the ground, living in symbiosis with the root. Now, the mycorrhizae, as I said, they're called, they get some nutrients from the tree, from its photosynthesis, its sugars. The fungus then helps the tree to absorb all the essential minerals. So there's a very, very complex relationship. So sometimes when you plant a tree, or you dig out, out a tree and break a lot of the roots and try to plant it, you leave behind a lot of the mycorrhizal fungi, so the tree never really takes off. Stays a, a little bit sick and not doing too well. And then you might see an acorn has been dropped by a jay and it lands beside your planted little thing, and this thing takes off and shoots up because it's of local provenance and it's got probably the mycorrhizal fungal attachments that allows it to develop so there's a connection between trees and each other and when the sap flows in the spring there is huge energy being dissipated and like we would say during the day when a tree is transpiring passing out water um, and the leaves are evaporating the water a tree actually pulls in it's only a fraction of a millimeter or so but when you measure a tree by day and by night they're actually a different size so the tree tends to suck in itself during the day it's like you suck in your cheeks when you're trying to suck up something, the tree pulls itself in a little bit. So I suppose maybe anyone who's in the presence of trees, whether they're just touching them or hugging them, there has to be some sort of well-being coming from it, because you find that some children specifically that would be Asperger's, they're incredibly drawn to trees. And once you allow them to hug the trees, that just seems to calm them down. Now, no one says anything, but you just can see this happening. So I think I wouldn't be very dismissive. There's a lot of ancient genetic connections within us and we just have to learn how to tap into it.
1: Here in Glengareff National Park, we are, of course, surrounded by trees, so you just can't help speaking about them. Kevin Corcoran tells me about dendrochronology. Seemingly, it's a scientific method used to date trees based on the analysis of patterns of tree rings. Dendrochronology can date the time at which tree rings were formed in many types of wood to the exact calendar year.
2: Just up here, this is a spot of a, a trunk uh, or a, a very large branch has been removed because it's overhanging the path, but you can see the annual rings. Yeah. Now there's a fascinating study you can do of annual rings and a few. And you can you can tell the age of a tree by the rings, can you? Yeah, that's just one of the simpler things. Yeah. Not there's a science, and if you just really want to impress your friends, you know, what are you doing these days? Oh, I'm studying dendrochronology. I want to be a dendrochronologist. <laughs> yeah, so, sounds great. <laughs> sounds great, and I love trying the word oh, dendrochronology, and people sort of look at you and they're trying to pronounce the word. But dendrochronology is the science of looking at the rings of a tree and using those rings of a tree to measure time and date events. Not only do you work out the age of a tree, the rings actually vary in thickness depending on the weather. Of the year it grew. Climatologists use them to actually assess the weather. So if you get a, a, a tree now that's been cut down, we say for whatever after storm it's been cut up, and there's 500 rings. You can actually just look at the weather over the last 500 years. Fat rings, good summers; thin rings, bad summers. And we've connected trees. I think mostly in the University of Belfast, they've got enough tree rings from bog oak and things like that, and old ships and old buildings, Viking ships, whatever. And they're able to actually take all the rings from all of them because they all grew in the same area and they're able to actually line up all the rings going back thousands of years and we can actually see the weather changing. So you can study climate. And then, of course, the, the rings and their thickness is like a barcode and no two sections are identical. And so if you find, we'll say, we'll say a dugout canoe in a bog and you think it's from maybe 2000 years ago, the Iron age, if you take a sample of it and there's good rings in it, you can take that sample and go to your master ring calendar and match it up, and eventually you'll find it exactly matches here and you get your date. And you know exactly when that tree was cut down. So, so so, what can you tell from looking at that, uh, where that branch was cut? That branch is now cut off for a good few years because the bark has grown right back around us, it and it's beginning to decay a bit. But if you were to get up very close and use the handlings, I'd get a rough idea of where the good summers were and the bad summers. And, and also you'd you, you get a very exact age, how big that limb was. But if I wanted to actually get this age of the tree, well, I meant to bring a measuring tape. You can get the age of a tree by... Maybe around chest height, just take the circumference and measure it in centimetres. So if you get a circumference, that one there is about three metres, let's say 300 centimetres, if not more. It's two centimetres on average for one year's growth. So if that's 300 centimetres. You get a fair idea that tree must be 150 years old, and so on. So, but it's growing in a very rocky area, so this tree might actually be uh, one that grew much slower, maybe one and a half centimeters a year. So you would put it up to about 200 years old at least. You don't necessarily need to cut down the tree to get the rings; we can use the circumference. But definitely, when we do get specimens that fall down and we cut them, that whole thing of dendrochronology to measure time, date events. Walk out the climate, and the simplest part, of course, is ageing the tree, but there's all the other aspects of it, so quite a fascinating science.
1: And that completes part two. I complete a walk around Glengareth National Park in part three in the company of Kevin Corcoran, author of West Cork Walks. Back in a few moments, stay right where you are. <laughs> Welcome back to Glengarriff National Park. I'm with Kevin Corcoran this evening, author of several walking guidebooks. This particular walk is included in his West Cork Walks book, updated since on five occasions. Towards the end of this walk, you have the option of visiting Lady Bantry's lookout. The climb up here is steep, but the panoramic views make it all worthwhile. If you look to the north, for instance, you can see the full extent of Glengarriff woodlands. No wonder Lady Bantry took time out from her obviously very busy schedule to come here.
2: walk now is circular in the book and takes in three or four hours comfortably and plenty of time for lunch and when you're coming back then you have that option to climb up these steps up onto a very high point where you can look out over the entire forested valley uh, which is quite beautiful and you can also look out over Bantry Bay and see Garnish Island so it was quite popular in the Victorian days as I said one of the old earls of Bantry set up his hunting lodge here Then was encouraging tourists to come and his wife, Lady Bantry obviously they had a lookout point up there where they could climb up and it became very popular so steps were put in and any Victorian tourists that were coming at the time everyone wanted to get up to Lady Bantry's lookout for for the, fine views. the fine view yeah. and of course it's just that magnificent view of the whole forest of all the oak trees and you get a glimpse of what all of Ireland must have looked like and it just is quite profound because we tend to forget really what the countryside was like.
1: As we come to the end of the walk and wind our way back towards the car park I'm wondering about a man who obviously does a lot of walking and keeps fit as a result. He's also an advocate of sustainable living. So I'm wondering if Kevin supplements all of this by keeping a close check on his diet and what he eats.
2: I suppose sometimes I'd like to keep it simple and say, you know, if you have a diet like your great-grandparents or grandparents at least, lots of fresh vegetables, not too much meat, i eat a lot of fish, and a huge amount of fruit, and a lot of cereals, I like the good old porridge. So as I said, like the meals of our grandparents... I'd be trying to grow my own food when I can and I just avoid all forms of convenience foods and uh, I'm very down on anything to do with fat. Yeah. Uh, And the Irish diet at the moment, do you think it's improved compared to 10 or 15 years ago? It's obviously got much worse for a large section of the population especially the ones that are probably easily manipulated by multinationals and big organisations that are just trying to flog their produce to make profits, whereas I do know anyone that gets into walking, almost like anyone that's into any form of sport, you know, like we've got a big sport following this country, BGA, soccer, whatever, and you notice that a lot of people that engage in this they are all severe conscious of their diet. So every club in every parish, BJA, whatever, you know, they normally always have a nutritionist on board, you know, helping the, the the lads and the girls who are active in the sport how to watch their diet. And I saw that a lot as a teacher as I used to teach biology. And obviously, then I was teaching about nutrition. So, we just eat too much fat is the first thing. I'd be encouraging, I'd be rotten wasting all the money on defibrillators. I'd encourage people to spend the money on uh, discouraging people from eating all that bloody fat. Which is causing a lot of the problems. So, the sluggishness that can come with that as well, you know, when you're eating badly, you can actually get tired and run down and you don't have the same energy. It affects you in a lot of different ways. You know, once you do become active and you start uh, experimenting with a healthier diet and you start seeing the benefits and the way it affects you, you never want to turn back. It's not rocket science it's not rocket science no and I prefer to eat fresh fish whenever I can get it which is I suppose I'd eat fish twice a day I'd have it for breakfast and I'd have it for dinner and then as I said lots of fresh vegetables and lots of fruit and of course one of the better cereals that I use is Macromoat meal of course which has been made in the same mill since the late 17th century stone ground and it's the last stone ground mill left in Ireland and I live right beside it. As I can remember actually the, the old miller telling me that, you know, when I was asking how long they were in the operation, he said, before the famine, someone would arrive here, maybe having hiked all the way from Bantry, Kenmare, or anywhere in some West Corp, with a bag of oats on their back, and they'd arrive barefooted, and they'd come to the miller, and they'd pay him a penny, and he'd turn the grain into oatmeal, and then he give given back the bag of oatmeal, and he said so they didn't turn around and then go off back to Bantry or Kenmare. They kept on heading for Cork. They were heading for the port, and they were taking the ship to get them to America. And they had the bag of oatmeal that was going to keep them alive during that whole journey. And it's found a be fascinating story. Yeah, and it's beginning to snow here, so we've got to take shelter.
1: A final paragraph in Kevin Corcoran's book on West Cork Walks and one which deals with Glengarriff National Park reads as follows. Further on, the path comes close to the river and leads on to an excellent example of the more natural and open forest. Around here, you should be able to see tree creepers scrambling up the tree trunks in search of insects and red squirrels scurrying about the branches. The fine trees are well spaced, leaving plenty of room for the natural woodland flowers and shrubs to develop. In October and November, the deep leaf fall covers the woodland floor and a variety of attractive fungi may be found pushing up through the golden brown leaves. Keep close to the riverside path until you meet a timber bridge on your left. Cross the bridge to arrive back in the car park. And so ends a pleasant walk in the company of a walking enthusiast and expert. This is an ideal walk for beginners and you should set aside three hours to do it, enjoy the scenery and what nature
2: has to offer here. It would be an ideal walk for anyone wanting to start off. Firstly, the, the worn of paths uh, and trails that go through the whole valley of the National Park. You can either use my walking guide to follow my trail or you can look at some of the, the maps and displays around here. Just experiment and you'll be safe all the time because there'll always be a, a, a marked path to follow. There's lots of other walkers coming here as well so you don't have to worry about being completely isolated on your own or something like that if you should get lost or anything you'll always come across someone I suppose it's just such a beautiful place that would encourage someone to start here first, explore it a little bit, get a bit of confidence and then you walk up from there so I would call this more of a casual walk, I grade my walks into three just so a person can have some understanding, the casual would always follow some well defined path and wouldn't necessarily go up into very steep areas the moderate will become a bit more chal- challenging, there will definitely be an uphill bit in it and you will be going off the paths from time to time and then finally what I call the tough that's what you aim for and that's going really into the uplands into the real hill walking there won't be any well marked path other than maybe footprints left by other walkers you might have a few walking trail signs but you will be in pure wilderness areas so this is a nice one for a novice to begin with. Definitely, yeah. So uh, I there's a couple in the West Cork Walks book that I would call casual, uh, and they'd be like this. So uh, it, It's ideal from that point of view. It's a good starter, and it won't overtax you. Get yourself organized. Uh, it's easy to find this place, and bring a little rucksack and the, the basics, and uh, away you go. I know in your book you you, you speak about you know the walker having respect for the landowner and vice versa definitely yeah and I suppose walkers are a bit like fishermen you know you go to a river and fishermen really look after their river and they don't leave rubbish after them and the same with walkers when you go into the wilderness uh, I suppose we all have the we pick up the idea, it's lovely to come across a place where you don't see litter all over the place and you leave nothing but f- footprints you waste nothing but time and you take nothing but memories and a place like the National Park is fine, be it Killarney here uh, or places like the Gera. but when you do go into the more moderate or tough walks and you're going into the uplands sometimes you are actually probably crossing land that's being used by some or is possibly owned by someone now you must respect that and therefore especially in the uplands you never bring dogs and always have to be careful look if there's a fence there's probably a stile somewhere and you don't knock down the fences and leave gates open. But in general, from what I find, you know, most walkers understand that. And they know that if they're abusive, they won't be able to come back. So walkers can actually be very conscious of where they are. And I've never really come across uh, walkers as such that are abusive. Maybe in the early stages, someone starting to walk. You get a few people who innocently do create a problem without realizing it but once it's brought to their attention they can uh, they're usually mortified and they'll never do it again listen if their sign's up you just have to respect it that you're not wanted in but You know, we keep up a good reputation and we look after the the countryside and enjoy it. And we earn the respect of the landowner and the businesses in the area because you are boosting the economy locally. And staying in a bed and breakfast if you're away hiking for a weekend or a hotel or you're just using a coffee shop uh, or the supermarket, they're, they're all a benefit to the area.
1: And because ownership of land changes fairly regularly, that's why it's important to update your books, which is exactly what you've done.
2: Yeah, usually every three to four years, I'll bring out a new version of it. If there's a serious problem, I'll remove the walk you know, if there's been a change in land ownership and the new owner doesn't want the walk coming through anymore you have to respect that. But on the positive side of it, I suppose I have to say, like, when I wrote that book to try and respect private property and try and use rights away that I knew were accessible and to the public I found it incredibly difficult to find a good dozen walks that I could put in a book where people could rely on feel safe. Today, I'd be spoiled for choice. The amount of walks that are opening up and so the, if you take some place like the Sheep's Head, which is uh, quite a phenomenon, say walking area, and the, all the, the landowners and the people of the area all get together and they open up the entire peninsula to hillwalkers, signposting it. You're going through farms. You're even in some cases maybe going through a farmyard, um, with the blessing of the owner. But they put in the styles for you. They put in the the way markers, and they're benefiting from it so much. They encourage the the walkers to come in and go into the wilderness areas. And one. Final point, I know at the very start of the walk this morning you spoke
1: about many years ago when you brought the idea of bringing out a walking guide and uh, the maps and the guides and directions and basically these people threw it in the bin. Are you happy now,
2: say, 25 years down the road how your walking books and walking in general is accepted? Oh yeah, i absolutely blown away by it actually. I just never thought in my wildest dreams that the book would still be printed 25 years later and that people would still want to buy it.
1: West Cork Walks, written by Kevin Corcoran, is published by the O'Brien Press, and it's on paperback. And that's where we leave you for this evening, thanks to John Foot and Sound and you for joining us. Kevin Corcoran ends the programme this evening with a poem on berries. From me, John Green, until Sunday evening next at 7, have a good week and goodbye for now.
2: From that point of view of connecting with nature and seeing with your ears, I suppose I could give you a simple example, I'll just recite a poem which is all about berries, and I just think it's a pretty nice poem. And the uh, berries, I will bring you berries from the spinney and the hedges, from deepen the dark woods and the slow streams' edges. I will bring you berries from the lawner hills and balick Millrace where dark waters spill. I will bring you berries, dusty with bloom, and berries like lanterns to glisten in your room. I will bring you berries of the holly and the yew, sloes from the black thorn and hips whence roses grew. Then some four cleft spindle with the orange red pips shown by its cleavage into coral lips and some juicy blackberries just to give a summer's taste before all of the autumn runs to winter waste.